Hello and welcome. This is Michael Hannes, and you're listening to episode number 327 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 11, the Prime Crew. I recommend listening to episodes 323 through 326 before you listen to this episode. Космодром Байконур. Июнь 1971 года. В соответствии с программой исследования околоземного космического пространства к полету подготовлена ракета-носитель с космическим кораблем Союз-11. In the previous series, we covered the launch of Soyuz 1, the first space station, and the first mission to visit the Soyuz which was Soyuz 10, on April 23, 1971. Recall that Soyuz 10 ended in a failed docking attempt in which the intended first crew of Salyut 1, Shatilov, Yelizhev, and Rukovishnikov, were unable to board the station. Now, we continue with Soyuz 11. The mission objective for Soyuz 11 was the same as Soyuz 10, which was to deliver and return to Earth the first crew of Salyut 1. Soyuz 11 was to hard dock with Salyut 1, and then the crew was to transfer internally to the station. The launch was on June 6, 1971, and the crew was expected to remain on the Salyut for 30 to 45 days. In fact, there were enough supplies aboard the Salyut to continue in manned operation until August 20th, 1971. With the failure of Soyuz 10, Salyut 1 continued to fly in an unpiloted mode. The program of science experiments that were supposed to be conducted suffered due to the fact that the cover of the infrared telescope had not been jettisoned. This greatly reduced the value of the science program. But TASS reports said nothing about the failure of the cover to open or the incomplete docking process. At the press conferences, the Soyuz 10 crew made no mention of the docking node's breakdown. Everything, supposedly, had gone according to the program, period. There was enormous political pressure to move the first crew of Salyut 1 on board as soon as possible. Recall that Soyuz 10 landed on April 24, 1971, and the launch of Soyuz 11 was supposed to be only six weeks later. During this very brief time, Many things had to be accomplished. For this reason, work was underway 24 hours a day to prepare the spacecraft. Here are the highlights of events leading to the launch of Soyuz 11. While the engineers at the OKB-1 Design Bureau were modifying the docking mechanism of the Soyuz to eliminate the problem which had prevented Soyuz 10 from linking up with Salyut 1, on May 2, 1971, Chief Designer Vasily Mission proposed to General Kamanin a revision to the Soyuz 11 mission. Chief Designer Mission 
was concerned that Salyut-1's docking mechanism might have been damaged by Soyuz-10 during the docking attempt. He proposed that the Soyuz-11 should carry in its orbital module two spacesuits, identical to those used for the external transfer during the Soyuz-4 and 5 mission. Once Soyuz-11 rendezvoused with Salyut-1, the spacecraft would park close alongside the Salyut and one of the cosmonauts would don his suit and exit the orbital module in order to inspect the station's docking mechanism. He would then cross the gap by gripping onto a series of handles on the surface of the station, make his way along to the area of the science module, and open the cover that had failed to release immediately after the station reached orbit. As part of this plan, Chief Designer Mission proposed that only two cosmonauts should be assigned to the next mission rather than three. But Chief Designer Mission's plan was deemed unrealistic. First, the training facility could not prepare cosmonauts for so complex a spacewalk in a time as short as one month. Second, there were no EVA suits available. Indeed, the inclusion of the exterior hatch on the transfer compartment of Salyut 1 was not to enable spacewalks to be undertaken, for none were planned. It was just forward planning for the stations that would follow. On May 3rd, at a meeting with the cosmonauts and trainers, General Kamanin directed that cosmonauts Lyonov, Kubasov, and Kolodin should train according to the initial plan. Although there was time for the backup crew of Dubrovsky, Volkov, and Patsayev to train for an EVA, that was ruled out. Because for the Soyuz to accommodate a pair of spacesuits, its crew would have to be reduced to two cosmonauts. On May 7th, Chief Designer Mission told the Council of Chief Designers that regardless of the inability of Soyuz 10 to dock, it was still possible for two crews, being Soyuz 11 and 12, to occupy Salyut 1. It was also decided that the testing for the modified docking system had to be accomplished by May 18th and that the launch of Soyuz 11 should be scheduled for June 4th. Also, the prime crew was confirmed to be Leonov, commander, Kubasov, flight engineer, and Kolodin, research engineer. Their assignment was to spend between 30 and 45 days on board Salyut 1. Then, Soyuz 12 would be launched on July 18th with Dobrovsky commander, Volkov flight engineer, and Patsayev research engineer. The duration of their mission would be determined by the resources remaining available to the station and the outcome of the first mission. On May 11th, at a meeting of the Military-Industrial Commission, Chief Designer Mission had to explain what had been learned from the failure of the Soyuz-10 to dock with the Salyut and how the docking system had been modified for Soyuz-11. 
He explained that Soyuz 11 would use the same model of spacecraft, the 7K OKS, that Soyuz 10 used, except for the following improvements made to the docking system. Number one, the probe would not begin to retract until after the vehicle's oscillations subsided. Number two, a manual control for the probe was installed. Number three, a special console was added on the Soyuz for manual docking control capability. And number four, alignment levers around the probe and a steel collar was installed to support the load during oscillations. Although the launch date for Soyuz 11 was only a few weeks off, much remained to be done. Not only had Leonov's crew to fly somewhat earlier than expected, they had also to train to use the improved docking system. Their spacecraft would be loaded with an additional 10 kilograms of fuel to allow extended docking maneuvers, and as a further precaution, Soyuz 11's resources during autonomous flight were increased from three to four days. On May 25th, just one month after the Central Committee visited OKB-1 to investigate the cause of the docking failure of Soyuz 10, Chief Designer Mission and his deputy, Chertok, reported about the launch readiness of Soyuz 11, and General Karimov reported that the launch was now scheduled for June 6, 1971. After that meeting, Chertok flew to Tyratam to check on preparations for the launch, much to his dismay, a serious problem in the docking system had been discovered during testing. When Chertok arrived at the testing hall, the specialist and the military testers were crowded around the manual control console for the docking mechanism, arguing. They explained that the previous day, during the performance of a test operation to extend the probe, they decided to make sure that in the retraction process, no erroneous cosmonaut actions would lead to the accidental firing of the approach engines, which did occur on Soyuz 10. During the test, in their haste, something went wrong, and the passage of the undock command lit up on the console at the wrong time. The developers of the docking electrical and mechanical systems discovered this defect the day before at 4 a.m., and they had been up two days without sleep, looking for what caused the mysterious signal behavior. Chertok immediately sent them to bed to get some rest, and in the morning, after they had rested, they found the problem. In the circuit of the test console, they discovered an extra relay that was only needed during the testing process of the docking assembly when it was being assembled and handed over to the factory. That relay failed, and the circuit, which wasn't necessary for the test at the engineering facility, turned out to be hooked up and displayed false commands. The failure had nothing to do with the onboard system. Repeated checks confirmed that the onboard portion of the docking system was in perfect order. As a result of the mistake in the testing procedure, they lost one precious day, but losses of time and rattling of nerves did not end there. 
The next problem occurred when an installer from the factory was standing next to the open hatch of the instrumentation compartment during a leak test on the spacecraft's thermal control system. Suddenly, he said, I heard a whoosh and, and saw a cloudlet that smelled like a hot iron. The installer called over a testing officer, and he supposedly also saw the cloudlet. If the air-releasing sound and the cloudlet were signs of a loss of pressure integrity in the thermal control system, then this meant a no-go for the launch. Immediately, retesting began. They raised and then released the pressure in the system several times. Then they called for a delay of 12 hours. There were no signs of leaks and no more air-releasing sound. So, on the night of May 28th, the Haggard Thermal Control Systems testers guaranteed pressure integrity and gave approval for handing over the vehicle for the irreversible fueling operations. However, that was not good enough for the lead test designer who refused to sign off on the vehicle unless another complete integrated test was performed, which would take 12 hours. But if this was done, the rollout would be postponed and the launch date would slip past June 6th. According to Chertok, postponing the launch date would have been a disaster, especially since they had just reported at the Kremlin that they were ready for launch on June 6th. Chertok did agree that another integrated test would be the safest thing to do, but General Karamov would have to be consulted to postpone the launch, and he was not receptive to that idea. Just in the nick of time, it was discovered the air-releasing sound was caused by an error of the test operator. The lead test designer agreed and approved the spacecraft for fueling. Another disaster avoided. Before Chertok retired for the evening, he made a stop at site number 17, the cosmonaut's residence, in order to wish Alexei Leonov a happy birthday. He was 37. Leonov was proud of the fact that he had been named commander of Soyuz 11, and he assured Chertok that his crew would enter the, quote, haunted station, end quote. They toasted Leonov with mineral water and promised to drink to his health with something stronger when he got home, because there was a strict dry law in effect at the cosmonaut's residence. On Monday, May 31st, Soyuz 11 returned from the fueling station and was installed in the vertical stand. While waiting for the arrival of the cosmonauts for their seat fit check, the entire stand structure was thoroughly wiped down with alcohol due to hygienic concerns from the medical staff. When the main crew arrived, they sat in the spacecraft for a little longer than the typical one hour. There were many questions and disputes, but no serious modifications were required. The backup crew also sat in the spacecraft for around 20 minutes. On June 2nd, the crews discussed with Chertok and other representatives from OKB-1 
the docking procedures, and potential failures of the automatic systems. They also discussed issues relating to the time that the station had spent in space, the possibility of toxic agents having accumulated in its atmosphere, food spoilage, water contamination, and erosion of the seal of the hatch between the two spacecraft. After both crews had spent approximately half an hour in the descent module rehearsing, Soyuz 11 was installed on its carrier rocket, the same model as the Soyuz 10, ready for transport to the pad. That evening, the cosmonauts exercised and played chess to relax. Kubasov, Kolodin, and Volkov liked tennis. Patsayev, soccer, Leonov did not mind and would play at anything. After a movie, they retired to bed. Although there was a general feeling that all of the procedures had been assessed and the cosmonauts in the spacecraft were ready, there were still some concerns in relation to the rendezvous technique. After Soyuz 10, cosmonaut Yelizhev was appointed to flight control. As an expert on the control system, he demanded precise figures to enable the cosmonauts to monitor the operation of the IGLA in different rendezvous scenarios. This information took the form of graphs showing the permitted variance of the rate of approach as a function of the range to the station. Whenever their speed touched a limiting line on the graph, the control system would automatically fire the thrusters either to accelerate or decelerate in order to remain within the corridor. Just when all the crises seemed to be over, on June 4th, there was another serious problem. During a routine medical examination of the cosmonauts, an X-ray scan showed an unusual dark spot on Kubasov's right lung, which had not been present on a scan in February. It looked like tuberculosis. Another scan confirmed that he did indeed have something on his lung, and the doctors decided he would not be able to fly the mission. Kubasov was one of the first civilians to have passed the Air Force's medical screening for cosmonaut selection. He was one of the strongest cosmonauts. He was fit and healthy. On the previous day, he had run five kilometers and then played tennis. Although Kubasov insisted that he was feeling perfectly all right and was ready to fly, the doctors ruled that he was still unfit to fly. This was unprecedented. In 1969, the original Soyuz 8 crew had been replaced as a result of poor scores in the training examinations. But that was almost two months prior to the mission. In this case, the cosmonauts were already at Baikonur, just two days before the launch. Now, a difficult decision on who would fly the mission would have to be made quickly. In the past, representatives of the Air Force, the Ministry of General Machine Building, and the Ministry of Health had all signed a document which specified that in the event of a cosmonaut on a prime crew being medically disqualified prior to traveling to Baikonur, he should be replaced by his backup. However, 
There should be no individual replacements once the crew were at the Cosmodrome. So the plan now was to replace the entire crew with its backup, which meant that Leonov's crew would have to be replaced by Dobrovsky's crew. That was the rule, but the situation was difficult. When Dobrovsky's crew was first assigned, they had been in the expectation that they would fly to Salyut 2 in 1972. As a result of the inability of Soyuz 10 to dock with Salyut 1 and the desire to make two visits to Salyut 1, Dobrovsky's mission had been advanced by one year. Now, they faced setting off with only a few days' notice and being the first to attempt the new docking procedure. In contrast to Soyuz 10, which included two veterans, one of whom, Shatilov, was the only cosmonaut to have previously made a docking, only one member of Dubrovsky's crew, Volkov, had flown in space. General Kamanin quickly called a meeting of the senior Air Force representatives there at the Cosmodrome, the medical staff, and the cosmonauts Shatilov, Leonov, Kolodin, and Dubrovsky. They analyzed the new situation and, after weighing all the factors, decided that the best solution was to reject the rule and instead do a one-cosmonaut substitution backup crew member Volkov for prime crew member Kubasov. General Karamov and Chief Designer Mission both agreed. But, a short time later, the Kremlin overruled their decision and assigned the mission to Dobrovsky's backup crew anyway. On June the 5th, the necessary calculations to allow for the change in overall weight of the crew were made and the couches, flight suits, and medical belts were changed for the backup crew. This was made more difficult now that the spacecraft was installed on the third stage of the launch vehicle and was inside its aerodynamic shroud. In the afternoon, several top-level medical experts flew in from Moscow. After a detailed analysis of the documentation of Kubasov's ailment, and taking additional scans, they confirmed the symptoms of tuberculosis. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 327 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Soyuz 11, The Prime Crew. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. If you're looking for old episodes, the first 156 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. 
Just a reminder that next year we will be going to a every other week release schedule with longer episodes. You should receive at least 75% of the content you received in 2019. And I want to stop here and say that I was touched by the outpouring of support for this change. It was a really tough decision for me. Many of you actually increased your financial support and wrote some very nice things. I really appreciate it, folks. That was just super kind of you. Thank you. Okay, it continues to be thank you donor bonus time of the year. All donors that have given 100 or more this year and have not received a 3-inch in diameter logo magnet, please email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address and I'll send one out. Everyone who has contributed $50 or more this year, send me your address and I will mail you out a SRH logo sticker. And any level of donor can send in $2 for an SRH logo sticker. That is below cost. Just go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button and make a $2 donation. Put your address in the donation comments. Look forward to hearing from you. All these offers end on December 31st, 2019. Wow, Soyuz 11 was under tremendous political pressure to pull this docking off and put a crew on the Salyut. But six weeks to make all those changes? Get the spacecraft ready and train the prime crew who were not expecting to go up this soon because Soyuz 10 was supposed to last longer. I would have a great sense of unease if I had to rush through something as important as that, especially since it was so politically sensitive. And why do the Soviets insist on sending three cosmonauts in a spacecraft that was designed to carry two? The simple reason is Apollo carried three astronauts. Why are the Soviets willing to take the risk of sending their crew of three without pressure suits? They received a warning on Soyuz 10 when toxic fumes filled the capsule causing Rukovishnikov to pass out. I guess it was worth the risk to them. Okay, I want to remind everyone that if you have enjoyed the podcast this past year, It is still not too late to become a donor, and for those who have already donated in the past and have not donated yet this year, this is the perfect time to make the longevity emoji maneuver. Make a donation now and receive a new emoji, and make a donation in January and receive another new emoji in just a few weeks. This year we are behind... But it might be possible to make our goals by the end of the year. Our main goal was to reach 600 contributors. So far we have 460, so we are 140 short. That is going to be tough (laughs) to make before December 31st. Maybe we can make 500. That would be just 40. Our Patreon goal is even harder. We're at 240 donors with the goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. Perhaps we could make 275. I don't know. If you are enjoying the 327 episodes provided here without commercial interruptions and are financially able, please help us reach our goal. 
To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the past week, we had several new contributions and increases, and I would like to recognize Francois G., who donated above the Orion level, Andrew W. from Maryland donated at the Orion level and earned a satellite emoji. Daniel O. donated at the Orion level and earned a moon emoji. There was an anonymous donation at the Orion level as well. Robert M. from Texas sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. David E. from Minnesota donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Joseph B. from Bavaria donated at the Apollo level. Martin K. from Germany donated at the Soyuz level and earned a satellite emoji. John Z. from New Jersey donated at the Soyuz level and earned a rocket emoji. Marco M. donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. Daniel A. from Canada donated at the Mercury level. Michael G. from the U.K. donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Martin P. from the U.K. donated at the Sputnik level. Christian R. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. Stephen L. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. Andy P. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. Ron B. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Mirror ISS level. Jim B. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Shuttle level. Simon R. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Salute Skylab level. Darren S. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Gemini level. Steve M. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Daniel M. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level. Charlotte D. increased her pledge on Patreon to the Mercury level. And Ray F. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Thank you very much. That was a really good week and we appreciate it. Here's Mrs. SRH with the weekly donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, everyone. It is my pleasure to announce this week's winner of the SRH logo magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Paul Pizzati. Paul Pizzati, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we'll get this out to you. Thank you to all 460 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. My sources for this week's episode were Rockets and People by Boris Chertok, Salyut, the First Space Station by G. Ivanovich, Roads to Space by the Russia Scientific Research Center for Space Documentation, Soviet Space Program website, Russia Space Web, Kerbal Space Program, Svingraph website, Astronics website, NASA Space Science Data Coordinated Archive, Space Facts website, and Wikipedia. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. I will try to have episode 328 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.